0: While her film work made her a household name and frequent Oscar nominee, today's guest has her roots both on and off Broadway, as well as in many of the country's top regional theaters, including The Old Globe, ACT in San Francisco, and Princeton's McCarter. Her recent New York credits include Wintertime at Second Stage and A Feminine Ending at Playwrights Horizons, as well as the Broadway productions of Steel Magnolias and Impressionism. She's currently working with Keen Company here in New York in a revival of Robert Anderson's I Never Sang for My Father. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome Marcia Mason.
1: Well, thank you. Also, I should mention that I worked for the Chicago Shakespeare Theatre and did the American premiere of Hecuba, um, there just a couple seasons ago. Well
0: we we will talk more okay. about about that as we <laughs> They'd go to hate
1: me if I didn't mention that. <laughs> no Barbara
0: Gaines would, would come <laughs> after yes, me Barbara as well. Would. <laughs> um I Never Sang for My Father. Yes. Um is a play that had success originally on Broadway in, in sixty eight. Yeah. And then about two years later the man who produced the Broadway production, Gil Cates, did a film of it Um, But it's not a piece that became part of the standard repertory. Mm -hmm. I think um, people under a certain age probably aren't familiar with it at all. So tell me a little bit about the play and about your character. I should say we're we're having this discussion while you're still in rehearsals.
1: Yes. Um, Well, what's also interesting is that Robert Anderson uh, originally wrote it um, as a screenplay before it was a play, Hmm. and um, didn't get it done as a screenplay. So he then wrote it as a play, and then it became a movie. So that's kind of an interesting story. And if you think about the structure of I Never Sang for My Father, it's a memory play, and it's about a man who is coming to terms with his relationship with his mother and father, but specifically his father, obviously. And it is about the fact that even though a person dies, the relationship continues. And what is it about those um, labels of father and mother that mean so much to a person in terms of how they um, make peace with their life?
0: Had you been familiar with the piece before you were approached to do it?
1: Yes, I did know about the play, and I didn't. Um, but mostly, actually, through the movie, I had never seen the play done. Um, Gene Hackman was the young man in the movie. Um, so the fact that, well, I think also the King Company is very interesting because they are a company that. Uh, looks very specifically for certain kinds of plays to do. And they had a wonderful uh, revival of Tea and Sympathy a couple of seasons ago with Jonathan Silverstein, who's also the director of this. And um, then they, uh, Jonathan had looked at this and had always wanted to do this play. So um, it hasn't really had a major revival in New York since 1968, since it was on Broadway.
0: Now, it's interesting... In whenever I've heard of prior productions, mm-hmm. I always hear about who played the father and who played the son. We used mm-hmm. to say the original production, though the father is not an actor whose name would be familiar to many now, Alan Webb. The son was Hal Holbrook. Right. Um, there was a TV version that your friend Jack O'Brien directed, um, which was from, I believe, a production he'd first done at the Old Globe with Harold Gould as right. the father and Daniel J. Trevanti as the son. Right. Um, you are stepping into a role created on Broadway by Lillian Brilliant. Gish. I know. Um <laughs> so wh- what is it about the play that makes people talk about the father-son relationship and where do you see the mother in the relationship here?
1: Well, part of the reason I think that um that the focus is on the father and son is because that is what the play truly is about, uh, is a son trying to make peace with the relationship to the father. Um, And so consequently, I think that's why, and perhaps because of the movie and the television versions, and since 1968 was the last time the play was really done in New York. I mean, people don't really relate to it too much. But I found what I was most interested in and the reason I wanted to do it was, number one, I was, I'm was i going to be playing a woman who's substantially older than I am. And that intrigued me enormously, just the same way as playing the sort of grumpy character in Steel Magnolias, um, sort of playing against or outside of how people would normally see me. And it gives me a kind of personal and creative challenge to... Um, uh, attempt these roles that are quite different for me, and um, also even physically different for me. So, well, again,
0: when I when I saw that Lillian Gish had created the part, I thought Marsha Mason's doing a role that Lillian Gish did. Now, mm. Lillian Gish always seemed old and mm. fragile, yes, and yes. you are vibrant oh. and 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 sturdier. I mean, just physically, yes. you're you know more more powerful woman. So I was thinking, this is either a very different interpretation or Marcia is is really mm-hmm. going to have to undergo a transformation to do this.
1: Well, I don't know, because I never saw Lillian Gish do it, but um, I mean, I think that there's a kind of strength that a certain generation of women have. I have a dear friend, Louise Latham, who was a wonderful actress, and she's now in her 80s, mid-80s, and um, patterned a lot of my feelings about the character after her. And she's very uh, strong, but she's had a lot of physical issues to deal with over the years as she's gotten older. So I'm finding that that's sort of the challenge and the reason why I wanted to do it was to create that. And then also to... I think that um, Lillian Gish may have looked physically because of the movies and everything, but obviously she was a very strong person because she lasted a long time. (laughs) That's true. That's
0: true. (laughs) Um,
1: Inevitably,
0: people will ask you the question, so I may as well join the pack, What is Marcia Mason doing in a 99 seat theater when you were in 99 seat theaters um, some some 40 years ago? I
1: I don't really worry too much about the size of the theater. I'm much more interested in the material and the. Uh, The part, for example, just a couple of seasons ago, I was at Playwrights Horizons in the smaller theater doing a new play by a young woman, Sarah Treem, who's a wonderful playwright and now um, a producer and writer on um, *In Treatment*, and um, called *Feminine Ending*. So I, I find that, and there is something really fascinating about working in these tiny, in these small spaces, because you're forced into dealing with the size of the house, the scale of the production, and there's something magical about having a minimum amount of furniture, a minimum amount of scenery, a small intimate space where the audience knows that it's sort of like a very large living room. And, um, and then, I, I mean, I've played at the second stage when it's 99-seat theater when it used to be up on Broadway and 75th or something. So I find those variations just really a wonderful challenge. It leads
0: me to wonder whether when you play in a house that size because you don't need to project to a balcony, you are in an intimate room and in those theater row theaters uh, where King Company performs a very live room, are you able to give a performance that's more akin to what you might do on film because everyone's closer and everyone can see more?
1: Um... I think possibly, yes. As a matter of fact, I walked into the theater for the first time this afternoon. We just moved into the theater today, and we're getting used to the space. And I immediately had that thought. First of all, the audience is very close to us, so the very first row is right there at the lip of the stage. So that's interesting to me. And um, and and everything, we, we're not in a great depth uh, as far as... Um, the size of the stage even. It's wide, but it's not that deep. So that a- thought occurred to me that in some ways it's, it's sort of like a film. Uh, but I think you can get fooled by that um, and have to be careful because e- uh, your voice and, and everything has to be modulated to the last row, Whereas the camera can be so close that you you don't have to project at all. So I I, I think it's a, a, it's an adjustment that you make. Mm-hmm. Um definitely. I mean, certainly when I played in the McCarter, which was an 800-seat theater and very wide, and really wide, so you really had to throw, or even at ACT, where you had a mezzanine and a second balcony. This is in, the, you
0: know, in the Geary. In, in the yeah. Geary,
1: exactly. So it just depends, um, and you have to get used to that. But um, I've always sort of prided myself on the fact that I... Um, I hate the idea that actors are mic'd, you know? I just mm.
0: Well, interesting, you mentioned the show at McCarter, and mm-hmm. was it the same production at McCarter Wintertime that went to, to second, the second Stage? Second Stage, exactly, because it was again, a co-production. Right. That's a change completely in scale different. and a number of shows have actually made that particular journey from McCarter to Second Stage. Well, they, they
1: designed stage. the set to sit to sit in both theaters, mm-hmm. but but it, you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of the playing of it, it's completely different.
0: Better, just different.
1: Yes, it's just different. Hmm. It's just different for me. I mean, I, I, I don't. Unless one is getting notes that you're not being heard, you know, then that would be uh, a problem. But no, it's just different. Hmm. I think that's. Uh, see, for me, it's this. It's this energy that exists in the in the theater. To me, and me to the theater and to the individuals in the seats. And that's the thing that that is really exciting to me about um, working in the theater. There's a kind of magical... You know, quantum physics thing that takes place that I just think is really remarkable. And I just remember, even from those early days when I first started to see theater and came to New York when I was in school and everything, and I would see somebody who could stand absolutely still on the stage and seem not to be projecting at all and yet you heard everything. And then there would be the other kind of performance w- that would require, you know, if it was Cyrano for example. And so here you you know, there is Cyrano uh, expounding and filling the theater with the beautiful words, and there's Roxanne, you know, uh, moaning over his body or Christian's body. So those kinds of things are just, they give me goosebumps, and I I really, I get excited by the magic of it. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, normally, this is where in the interview I'd say, tell me (laughs) about how you got your start, which I'm going to do, but Because it's going to be a recurring motif throughout our conversations, I want to ask you about your working relationship with the director, Jack O'Brien, Okay, because he comes up so many times. Mm. You first met Jack when you were working at ACT. That's correct. In San Francisco. And you said he – you told me before we started that he was assisting Ellis Rabb on You Can't Take It With You.
1: Yes. They, well, Ellis had done an original production of it. And then uh, Bill Ball at ACT hired Jack O'Brien to come and mount another production. Aha. Uh-huh. So – but this was Jack's production. But I think he, as he would honestly say, you know, stole the best. Um, <laughs> 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 yes. So that's what we did.
0: So, looking over this quickly, mm-hmm. a production in 75 of The Heiress yes. in L.A., yep. in 81, a production of Mary Stewart at the Amundsen. <laughs> uh, I'm probably missing some things. He did the television version of The Good, Good Doctor. Doctor. He And then, of course, your most recent Broadway appearance uh, in Impressionism was yes, also and Jack. and I
1: also did um, uh, Shakespeare when he was at The Globe. Um played Viola. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. <laughs> tell
0: me about the relationship with Jack O'Brien.
1: I don't know. It's just one of those very special, um, creative and um, heartfelt relationships. I mean, I don't know. It, it, I think the the... The time at ACT was so extraordinarily creative for me. I mean, I did five full-blown productions, playing the leading lady, and um, and Jack was, you know, grabbing me on the um, sort of on the fly to mount. Uh, you can't take it with you, and so we were kind of forged. Uh, our relationship was forged in this, you know, frenetic. Sort of schedule, because I was then doing Roxanne and Cyrano, I was doing Jessica and Merchant of Venice those were the two that were up. then we were rehearsing you can 't take it with you and I had also started to rehearse Nora Dow's house, so I was being you know shunted just sort of shuttled to different rehearsals or to the performances and it was a, a an extraordinarily creative and positive time for me um, so uh, Jack and I. Um f- you know created this wonderful bond then, and then um he just is uh, he loves actors so much and he 's so creative and he 's so inventive and he 's so positive and and also he 's so intelligent. And he's so experienced now, especially, you know, after all the years of running the globe. And I don't know how many productions he has under his belt, but it's hundreds and hundreds. And he's in some of his best and finest work now. Um, uh, The Henrys were just extraordinary. I mean, the Stoppard trilogy was unbelievable. And actors love to work with him. And you have never heard an actor not, you know, want to just lay down and die for him. And he just has that uh, capability and quality because you know your experience is going to be a high. It's just going to be a high.
0: Yet over the, what are we talking about, almost 40 years now since Mm -hmm. you first worked with him, also your experience Mm -hmm. has has grown at the same time. And I'm wondering whether The relationship between you, the actor, and Jack, the director, has evolved. Do you deal with each other differently than you would have back in in those days at ACD?
1: Oh sure, yes. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, a lot of times, like he'll think of me. For example, with impressionism, um, it isn't how the playwright had thought of the part. But Jack wanted to. He knew something about me that I could bring to to the material. So, so there's that part of it. Um, he he knows me and knows what I'm capable of doing. So, so that part is, is is quite wonderful. And so we have a shorthand, really. And then he often jokes with me because now, because the shorthand is there, you know, I go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, don't bother telling yeah, me. No, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he he told a story on me once. Um, I can't remember which production it was, but he said that I had said to him, what the hell do you mean by that? <laughs> Something like that. So I, I don't remember never doing it. But we have that kind of um, ease, I guess, with each other that I can just truly be myself. And I think that's what I think that's well, and I can trust him. I know he'll take good care of me. I know he will protect me. I know that he um, will make sure that I'm that I'm out there and that I have everything I need to, to succeed.
0: Well, now I'll go back to my standard conversational Mm. gambit, which is how did you get started? You were from St. Louis. St. Louis, yes. Um, Were you doing shows in school or was it something you came to?
1: Well, I I was – bitten by the bug when I was in high school, a freshman in high school. And then from that moment on, I knew that I wanted to study um, and be somehow in the theater. I didn't know what that meant exactly. But I wound up um, going to Webster College, which is now Webster University, with a flourishing drama department. At that time, it was a small Catholic women's college, um, quickly became a co-educational college and then ultimately a secular university. But um, that was where I got started. And then the minute that I was in college, I knew that I wanted to go to New York. So as soon as I graduated, I would have gone sooner, but my father said I had to finish school. So um, as soon as I graduated from college, I came to New York.
0: And once you got to New York, did you have to do the waitressing thing? Did Absolutely. you have to scramble? Sure. So what was the first break?
1: Um, let's see. I came to New York, I remember, with $500. I don't think you could do that today. But,
0: but in those days, it <laughs> yeah. probably held you for a little yeah. bit.
1: Um, well, I guess my first break – well, actually – You know, isn't that funny? I can't really remember. But I would think that, interestingly enough, the first really big break was I was um, hired finally. I had auditioned nine different times for Cactus Flower on Broadway, and um, I was never getting it, and it was really bothering me. Then finally, like the ninth time, I... um, I was hired as an understudy to the ingenue and played a small sort of comedic role, but Abe Burroughs put me into the show. And then from that, um, because I went on with no rehearsal, there was a glitch in some contractual issues, and so, and I just piped up and said, oh, I can do it, I can do it, and memorized the play over the weekend and went in just stone cold with the stage manager sweating bullets. And, um, and so the Merrick office was very impressed, and so I went. Out on the road with it, um, the national tour, and so that was the first time that I think I really became sort of seasoned. And then when I came back, I wound up doing um, Deer Park with, um, which was what was interesting was I wound up having two novelists as their first and only plays, which was Norman Mailer and Kurt Vonnegut. And I wound up working in both of their only plays. And that was so fascinating to me.
0: Well, let's stay with Deer Park for a minute, because certainly nowadays you look and see a play by Norman Mailer and a cast that included Rip Torn. Mm -hmm. Um, That must have potentially been a volatile working (laughs) situation. it it was
1: totally. As a matter of fact, I was married at the time to a young actor by the name of Gary Campbell, who um, has since passed on, but... um, he was in the show also, and there was one particular performance, and I had a scene with Rip, and he had his hand on the back of a banquette, um, and he slammed his fist into my back. And I thought my husband was going to come out of the scenery, but um, he was just, that was the nature of of, of his personality, Um but it was a very, very interesting experience. And I asked him why he did that. And he said he thought that I was anticipating. Um, and so that was a really important lesson to learn. Uh-huh. <laughs> Mailer himself,
0: mm. as when you, you mentioned novelists doing his, his only play, a novelist works alone. And puts whatever they want on paper in the way that they want it to be seen, if not perceived. The idea of working collaboratively. Mailer subsequently directed some films. so I was would,
1: in one of them, too. You know, I, did, so, I did. I can't remember which one. But. So he
0: would have that. But what was it like working with an author who wasn't used to having all of these other people interpret their work for an
1: audience? Well... He was a very jocular and um, uh, big kind of personality, but a big teddy bearish kind of personality. He wasn't like Rip, do you know what I mean? Hmm. And, and um, But he did have very specific ideas, and some of them were not the best ideas, I think, for the show. For example, there was this round, because he envisioned it somehow as this... Um, boxing thing and so he would have that clanging bell and so we would start with the number 38 well very quickly when the audience realized that these scenes were going to go down to one Mm. do you know what i mean it was like Uh, we're only on 23 oh my god 23 (laughs) so um Yeah, so that was fascinating. Compared to, for example, Kurt Vonnegut, who had never written a play either. And we would be working on some. This was based on uh, Happy Birthday, Wanda June. And in this situation, um, what he would do is, if something wasn't working, he would go home and he'd write 40 more pages. I never saw so many rewrites until... Um, until I worked with Neil, I mean, he he understood on an intuitive level that you know that the writing he just he just wasn't afraid of that. Now a lot of playwrights are afraid of that; they somehow get frozen or um, you know for whatever the reason they find it very hard to change their word. Uh, whereas Kurt was not that way at all. He uh, he completely. Um, you know, was totally open to it, and I always wanted him to write m- more for the theater, but he never did.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm enough of a Vonnegut aficionado that I've I've read "Happy Birthday, Wanda June" and I've seen the movie. It's a pretty bizarro piece of work. Mm-hmm. And was it was it meant to be simply a piece of absurdism? Or was it that he was shooting it off in all directions and and wasn't structuring it conventionally?
1: Um, I didn't find the structure so insane in the play, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that, strangely enough, I think that With Kurt Vonnegut, people come with a preconceived idea because he was, his style and his way of communicating was so specific and so individualized to him. So, and he had had some, he was a cult figure by then. So I think they, a lot of people brought that to the, to the situation. And also it was at a time when there wasn't that much that kind of experimentation, let's say, in terms of odd characters, oddball Mm -hmm. characters. There was, in terms of the theater per se, you had the new theater, you had people doing a lot of experimental, improvisational kind of things down at Mama and all that, but you didn't have it uh, on a more traditional venue the way um, we were doing it. The characters were unusual. I mean... The lead character of the guy, the jungle, you know, hunter and all of that stuff.
0: Hmm. Now, in between talking about these novelist-written plays, we've skipped over um, an off-Broadway gig that's it's fairly interesting. Mm-hmm. You were on one half of a double bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, your play was called – it's called Sugar Plum. Uh, which you did with John Plachette, and the other half was in wants, wants the, the Bronx, Bronx with mm-hmm. Al Pacino and John Cazale. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and ultimately Matthew Kyle, yeah.
0: I mean, what's what's sort of remarkable is... Indian Wants the Bronx is the part that everyone remembers. It was collected in the Best Short Plays book back when John Gassner did those, and and certainly we talk about early in the career. Everyone says that's where people really first saw Pacino. Um, what was your play? Because it was I don't a know two, ca-
1: yeah, it. it was a two character play about a relationship between a young girl and a, and a boy. You know, young two young people, and um, and it was kind of crazy. Um, it was Israel uh, Horowitz, I think, exploring um, certain male attitudes about relationships and women. Um, and I, the play was was really complicated for me. It was one of the few times where I really seriously questioned whether or not I should continue to be an actress. Hmm. There came this moment in previews. I think we had just started previews. um, And I hadn't eaten for days. I was so nervous. I knew that something was not right. And I was just having a very difficult time trying to find my way through the through the play and the character. And I think um, Israel was trying hard to help me, and um, Jimmy Hammerstein was the director. And and I remember we uh, took a break after rehearsal, and we were going into previews that night, and it was the first time I went to a restaurant, and I had something to eat. I remember it was like pasta with uh, Alfredo sauce or something. And I came back, I took one look at the stage, and I fainted. <laughs> And I just was so. I was at the nadir of my uh, existence as a young, struggling actress, and I really did question seriously whether or not I, I had the, had the, you know, the wherewithal to be able to accomplish uh, a proper career, and then. Um, I think what was interesting, the reviews were really fair. Uh, they said, I remember there was this one gentleman who um, I believe wrote for one of the papers, and he said it was a less than concise performance. And I, I at that time, what was really wonderful about some of the reviewers and the critics, um was that there was there was real information that you could use hmm. there was um a, a a kind of um understanding that the criticism could be a very helpful one and i remember um years later uh talking to Neil uh, Simon about it, my ex-husband, and saying, and he would say the same thing, that there were producers, for example, who were very knowledgeable that could help young playwrights like St. Suber and stuff, and also he, he gained um, important information and helpful uh, things from certain reviews for his plays. But I don't believe that that's really what... Um, the reviewers are now doing. I mean, I think their focus is somehow either to, I don't know what it is exactly. I hmm. can't honestly say. Um, it's an opinion, certainly, and that's fair. But it's a little I mean, more
0: thumbs up, thumbs down.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, but that's sort of true of almost everything in the inter- entertainment business. It's a kind of shift that's happened in American culture in general. Um just along with reality TV and everything else, you know what I mean. So, I don't know. But in those days, I mean, I remember reading uh, John Simon's first book, Acid Test, and uh, some of it was pretty tough. But there was there was some 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 things that you could gain in it. But I don't know. I think that um, this whole issue of uh, negative criticism can sell or not, you know what I mean? And then who knows? Hmm. I have no idea.
0: You talked about the anxiety and questioning Mm. whether you could do it or Mm -hmm. go on. So what picked you up?
1: I think that um, I remember after that I was collecting unemployment or something. And I think that's, I'm not sure of my own career. I never tend to look too much in the past, I mean, other than important lessons. But I think that for me, the really key moment came, I had auditioned for a movie in New York um, that Paul Mazursky was going to do called Bloom and Love. And at the time, I was doing a um, soap opera. Now, the reason I was doing the soap opera was the same kind of thing as uh, Cactus Flower, which was I... I would go up for these auditions to soap operas and I wouldn't get the job. And I was, like, so incensed that I didn't get a job on a soap opera because I didn't think the acting was all that great on them. And then I realized I can't really be a judge of something until I do it. So I finally got hired and I was having a good time on Love of Life. But um, I had auditioned for the movie. I thought I did really, really well. I didn't get it. Um, and I was depressed. And I walked into my agent's office and I said, you know what, I want to leave the soap and I don't want to leave it for another job. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know, but I have to find out if I'm really a serious actress or not. Maybe go off and do repertory somewhere for $250 a week. And within, I would say, about four weeks of that conversation, He got a call about replacing an actress in private lives at ACT in San Francisco.
0: Now, replacing an actress, was it in rehearsals or was the show already up? And at that point, I assume they were still performing in classic repertory.
1: Yes, but it was the summer. And what the, the play had been one of the jewels of their previous season. And uh, Michael Leonard was their leading lady. And she was at that time married to Peter Donat. And they were doing private lives. And Michael got The, the Waltons. Waltons. Yeah. And she couldn't uh, do the Waltons if they didn't find a replacement because they had booked a summer package of private lives to travel to two or three different places in the summertime. And so I was replacing Michael in that production with the same actors and everything, the same director, uh, and we were just taking it out for a, a six-week run or whatever. Hmm. And then because of that experience with Private Lives, I wanted to become part of the main company. So I asked the other actors, you know, how does this work? And they said, well, you know, they'll invite you if they want you, and maybe you'll get one good part and the rest will be as cast and you'll earn $250 a week.
0: Well, let's (laughs) not skip past Private Lives so fast, because (laughs) I've got to ask you, you blithely mentioned it was the same director. Mm -hmm. The director was Francis Ford Coppola. Yes. (laughs) Not noted as a theater director. And so... Now, granted, you said it had already been mounted once before, Mm -hmm. so he had a handle on Mm -hmm. what was going on, but what was he like as a stage director?
1: He was great. He was terrific. He had found this really interesting way of doing some of the scenes with this rail in front, and he considered that a really terrific thing but the the real issue that happened at that moment was I got hired, I was put in by the stage manager then he came with Bill Ball and they would look at the run through and then give me notes and and then we would have two more rehearsals and then I'd be off. The day that he came to, the first day that he came to see the show and everything, um, he had finished shooting the original Godfather he had mortgaged his house and he had done all this stuff and he and al ruddy had the producer had a bet with the studio that the picture would gross 7 or 9 million dollars a very small amount during but it was big huge for those in those, days, in those huge. days so what happened was the bet was a very special mercedes benz that was made only in germany and he, the, the day that he watched my run-through was the day that the Mercedes arrived from Germany because they had passed the 7 or $9 million mark. And he took me for a ride <laughs> in this car to show me what the most um, wealthiest woman in the world, what she would be in, and we would talk about the character that I was playing in, Private Lives. So oh come he on he really just wanted good. to get out of the car.
0: <laughs> but he <was laughs> You bought great. that yeah. line. You know and he, then
1: he told me a couple of really great stories. He said um, he said to me, um, you know, you're a kid, you're fine, you're doing good. He said, the only problem is in the fight scene, you get a little contemporary with your gestures. you got to remember you're the wealthiest woman in the world. Why don't you go out and get yourself the most expensive underwear and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I can't very well do that on my salary, but I'll figure out something. So I went and I doused myself with the most expensive perfume. I went to a perfumery in San Francisco and found a very, very heavy French uh, expensive and blew all my money on the perfume and did the wig and the costumes and everything to constantly remind me of who I was. And then he told me another wonderful story. He told me about um, what uh, Brando did in the original Godfather where um, he was seated at the desk and he used the cat and the cat helped him. Um, he had, he would have a cat uh, on, on his lap. But the really nice thing, the story that he told me was he had a pinky ring, and he got it three sizes too small, and he finally got it on his fingers so that it would blow up kind of on either side, and it would look like a ring that he had had for a very, very long time. And these were certain things that he did uh, to remind himself of the kind of character that he was playing. Hmm. And that's how we spent the afternoon in the back of his (laughs) Mercedes-Benz.
0: Well, you were invited to spend a full season there. And as you already said, uh, a season, uh, you can't take it with you, for Jack O'Brien, Merchant of Venice, Cyrano de Bergerac, Crucible, and Doll's House. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you'd stepped into Michael Learned's shoes because she, as you say, she was the leading lady. And suddenly, so you're playing Nora. Yeah. And you're playing portia
1: yeah and and no i played jessica ah, i played jessica yes
0: um but i'm playing abigail abigail in the crucible i mean that's amazing in rep yeah yeah extraordinary
1: yeah it was huge
0: and you did it for a season i mean Mm -hmm. you, you already said you know you you thought that you could get something out of of spending some time in repertory were you not asked back, or did you not wish to go back?
1: Uh, No, I wanted to go back, and we were planning on me going back to do Caden Taming. And what happened was, uh, this is one of those really odd things, I finished up the season, and I came back to New York. I had sublet my apartment and stuff, and I came back to New York, and at the last minute, my agents said to me, you really have to go and audition for uh, a Neil Simon piece called The Good Doctor. And I said, no, I want to go back to ACT. And they said, well, you might like this because it's based on Chekhovian short stories, and there would be about four um, different parts to play in The Good Doctor. So I said, well, I'll go and audition. So I went to the theater, and... um, I had gotten some sides. What's kind of interesting about the serendipitousness of it is that when um, when I wound up going that summer to ACT and everything, what happened was is that I didn't get the picture with uh, Paul Mazursky, Bloom in Love. But then what happened was after I finished the summer package of Private Lives, I went down to Los Angeles and I met the casting people at the studio because I had done a very good audition even though I hadn't gotten the role. They wanted to meet me because they had uh, only the New York office at that time had met me, was at Warner Brothers. So I go, and what happened was is that the actress who had been hired wanted to do another Warner's picture. Hmm. And so suddenly there was Paul, and the part was available again. And as I was sitting in the casting office with all the scripts for Bloom and Love flying around, she said, we'll talk later, you have to go back up and meet Paul Mazursky and read for him again because blah, 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 blah. And he hired me. And I wound up doing Bloom and Love that summer before I went off to do the full season uh, at ACT. And while I was at ACT, Mark Rydell was trying to cast Cinderella Liberty, and he looked at rough footage of Bloom and Love and came to ACT to see me in Dahl's house, and that's how I got that hmm. role in um, Cinderella Liberty. It's all linked up, yeah. Huh. And so, you couldn't have planned that.
0: So you go back to New York mm-hmm. to to do what what your agent sold you on is as. as Rep within a single production, Uh, a great cast, Rene Auberginois, Barney Hughes, Christopher Plummer, and Francis Sternhagen, and as you've already said, by Neil Simon, who became your husband. The question that I have for you is, there are these hugely successful films Mm -hmm. that Neil wrote, presumably always with you in mind, you were cast in them, why was he not writing plays specifically for you
1: well we had uh, first of all i mean we met um, the at you know f- on the good doctor and i remember um the first day of rehearsal was october the 3rd um and then we were married on the 25th of october so um That was a kind of whirlwind situation. And then we settled in for a year in New York, and I had inherited a complete family with Ellen and Nancy, and their mother had passed away. And so, you know, we had to get to know one another. We only knew each other three weeks before we got married. So one uh, part and parcel of, I think, starting a new life and everything is that a lot of Neil's friends had gone out to L.A. Mike Nichols had moved out to L.A. and a bunch of other people. And so he thought it would be good for us to have um, a fresh start And so we moved to L.A. So I think that in some ways um, that may have been part of the reason, because the films only uh, lasted, you know, 10 or 12 weeks. Uh, We would rehearse and stuff. Whereas the commitment to a play, and I think quite honestly, from a selfish point of view, it was easier because... Um, i I had my evenings free basically and so we could have a family and I could be home for dinner and you know we could i could raise the girls and and we could have the a semblance of a normal life um Whereas if we if I worked in the theater, I'd be doing eight performances a week. and um, and he liked to write during the day. and he had a very specific sort of time schedule, and it suited him. And so he really wanted me free so that, you know, we could have evenings together and stuff. Mm-hmm. and and it made sense.
0: Of the plays he wrote in that period, chapter two was often referred to as being most explicitly. Based yes. on your relationship, you did the film. Yes, you didn't do the play, no. presumably for all the reasons you just outlined. But what was it like having married a playwright to uh, see someone else play out elements or a version of your life on stage?
1: Um, it was well. It was fascinating. I mean, I, I mean, I can tell the story now, but I remember they were auditioning um, people. Uh, for the Broadway show, and uh, I had some reason to come to the theater to deliver something to him, and I was going to leave, and then I don't know quite what made me think to do it, but I snuck back in, and I went up into the balcony of the theater, um, the O'Neill at the time that he owned, and um, I watched the auditions, and... It was extraordinary. I mean, I would never have told anybody that I would do it because it was all my own peer group that were auditioning. And I I learned something so valuable watching these wonderful actresses um, come in to read those two parts. And by the time we got to the movie... It was like four or five. There had been a span of four or five years in our personal relationship, so I felt totally as if uh, it wasn't really me in an odd way because I had grown up a lot in those four or five years, um, becoming a mother and becoming Mrs. Neil Simon and all, all the stuff that goes with it, and plus living out in Hollywood and you know getting Academy Award nominations and all that stuff. So it. I never never really, I was always very objective about it, but I always had a kind of objectivity about my own work, too. I could watch dailies, for example. A lot of directors don't want their actors to watch dailies, but I insisted, and I was always very objective, and I could always pick out the best takes, and invariably the directors and I always concurred. We all, I could always see it, and so could they. So I, I always had a very good objective uh, perspective on the work and my mm. own work and, and everything. And even Neil and I had an excellent professional relationship. A lot of married couples can't work together, um, but we, we had such a mutual respect for each other that um, it never was a problem, really. Mm.
0: Now, as I look over all of the work you've done, I see a couple of times you've directed Mm. um, something maybe people don't know. I see a production of Heaven Can Wait Mm -hmm. down at the old Burt Reynolds Theater Mm -hmm. in Florida um, and then a play called Juno's Swans Mm -hmm. for second stage. What was the experience of being a director like for you?
1: Well, it was wonderful. I mean, I'll always be grateful to Carol Rothman and Robin Goodman for giving me the opportunity to direct a new play um, at the second stage. And Heaven Can Wait was a. Uh, uh, one of those tri- trial by fires because I was originally supposed to direct Mass Appeal, which is a basically a two-character single-set play, and instead I wound up with 16 characters and five sets. So <laughs> it was a trial by fire, and we managed to pull it off. And I had Bob Hayes and Jack Guilford, um, and they were great. Yeah. Uh, but I found that um, I, had a, I had a good sense of uh, pictorial perspective, uh, and not wanting to, um, and trying to find whatever it was, the quality of the individual actor, as opposed to how I might do it. And I've often talked to other, or read about, I think Carl Malden, I once read a quote of his where he directed once, and he said he could never do it again, because he just always wanted the um, actor to do it the way he would want to do it. And I didn't have that problem, necessarily. (laughs) Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't put myself. I I looked to see what they brought to it and uh, and attempted, you know, hmm. to deal with. Um, and I I guess I I liked it. I mean, I I I liked I liked it. I mean, I even build houses sort of the same way. It's like I do a lot of pre production. You know what I mean? So <laughs> um, <laughs> I seem to have a a, hel- a healthy uh, objectivity, if you will.
0: You made a choice uh, to leave Hollywood in 93, Mm. if the research is right, Mm -hmm. and you moved yourself to a farm in New Mexico. Mm. And even as we were preparing to start taping this interview, you were on the phone giving direction (laughs) to some of the people in New Mexico, it seemed. Um, I guess a lot of people can understand the choice about leaving Hollywood, but for someone who was... Who was rooted in the stage? You didn't make a choice to move back to New York.
1: I know. I thought I would have. I would have thought that I would have too. Um, I don't know. It was. A, it was a combination of things. One was, I. I really tried to make it work after the divorce, living in L.A., and it just really wasn't working. The business had changed, and I was just finding it not uh, a comfortable place for a single. Woman to be, quite honestly, and th- I and the whole shift in the business was uh, quite dramatic. It had gotten very youth oriented, and the parts just you know weren't there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and some friends of mine um, were looking at. Um, buying some land in New Mexico. Now, my first husband was from New Mexico. And interestingly enough, Neil and I had a second home in Santa Fe for a couple of years before we divorced. And I toyed with the idea of keeping it, and then we decided to sell it because I didn't think I could be landlocked. Um, So I had this kind of interesting relationship to New Mexico, but I never really sort of planned on spending my life there. But when I suddenly looked around one day and said to myself, well, I could really live pretty much anywhere I want. So I said, maybe I should just throw up the pieces of my life sort of like a kaleidoscope and just see what kind of pattern might come down. So I trundled off with uh, friends, my ex-husband and his partner, and looked at property in New Mexico. And then just again, serendipitously, my friend Shirley McLean called me and she said, I'm, I'm going to move to New Mexico. I said, you are? And she said, yes. She said, and I think it's fabulous. You ought to look there and everything. And then she calls me again, and she said, listen, I found this great place. You should look at it. She said, I'm going to buy the mountain, but there's this land down <laughs> near the river. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I went, and I looked at this raw land, and it was just grazing land along the Rio Chama. And I don't know. It was just one of those things. I took one look at it, and I said, okay. I'll do this. Hmm. And then I, ju- I didn't plan on being a farmer. I didn't plan on running a farm or having a product line or any of that stuff. But
0: So how do you make the decision when you're ready to come off the farm and mm-hmm. come back onto the stage? Because it looks like it was about three years later that you were next on Broadway doing Night of the Iguana, at mm-hmm. the roundabout with Gray Cash, Cherry Jones and, mm-hmm. and William Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Does it become harder to to accept work or even be thought of for work if you've taken yourself out of the two main centers of of the entertainment world?
1: Well, I think that I didn't notice, for example, that. Um I was taking myself out of, although it was later when I would be interviewed or I would go and meet somebody for uh, some uh, future project or something, that people were actually perceiving me that way. But I I actually didn't think of myself that way. And... um, I just did whenever something happened, I, you know, I always kept a place in New York. I always liked coming to see the theater. I maintained my relationship with my friends and um, professional um Colleagues and stuff, but I think that it was also part and parcel of my own maturation as a woman and as a human being. That was the most important thing for me because it had been a ten-year relationship with Neil. I had my my whole identity had been wrapped around my work, and when the work started to um, go away, I really suffered a kind of. Uh, uh, frison of fear and anxiety of, oh, wait a minute, then who am I? Because I realized my work was my identity. So those years in New Mexico um, were, I think, about becoming a fuller person and um, and, and exploring other aspects of my own personality and my potential and at the same time trying to maintain because, um, you know, I was still doing television uh, periodically and if something happened, you know, and stuff like this, I did, you know, Frasier and all, all of that sort of thing and some of the Lifetime movies and... Um, and just what I, and then, like I say, going to Chicago and doing Hecuba, so there were all those kinds of opportunities and um, and now I find I want to downsize and simplify. I've spent sixteen years in New Mexico, and now I'm going to start to pull some of that away um, and focus and sort of simplify and come back east and spend more time doing. Uh, just theater, because I like it. Well, I'm open to film and television, but, I mean, I just find the parts in theater very exciting. But what was it like getting
0: back on a Broadway stage, you know, in 96, not having... you had been certainly been doing theater, mm. but you'd not been on what was classified as a Broadway show in 20-some years.
1: Mm. Had the life experience informed your work oh i think so because first of all i had to audition for them because they i didn't want to do the part that they probably would have if they thought i was suitable for would have been you know like the sally field role but i wanted to play shirley McLean's role and i had this long talk with shirley about it and she said try to play older character parts sooner um because she did that with Madame Suzakka, she played you know a much older part way before you know uh, she got older. <laughs> um, so so I I fought for that and uh, came to New York and I auditioned for Jason Moore and for uh, the uh, people because they wanted to make sure that I could have that edge that I could be that grumpy person and uh, and that uh, you know that. Uh, Unattractive of uh, a human being. And so it turned out great. I mean, Franny and I, you know, would bring the house down every night, so it mm. was really cool.
0: Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about two more uh, projects of yours. You've had a long standing relationship with the company LA Theater Works, mm, which yes. does plays produced for radio. They've That's been around correct. for years, and you've done a lot of, of plays with them. Yes. Um, since so few people work really in radio, and these are plays that were meant for the stage, they were both visual and and uh, literary um, what 's it like to to do those shows are they adaptations or no, is it
1: just the straight script it is the stri- i just was there a couple of weeks ago a few weeks ago before i started rehearsal here um we recorded california suite for uh for la theater works and uh with bruce bruce davison and myself and amy peets and um uh we do the straight play you do it in front of a live audience uh, we do five performances. You have a director. You, you're you obviously reading the script. Um, but um, you do it like, in some respects, the old way of radio. We have ADR. The person that's doing the sound effects is also on the stage. And um, you rehearse for two or three days. And then you do the five performances. They record them, and then they edit them. Hmm it's great it's a, we we actually did early on with l a theater works we did the novel Babbitt and we did I think I played three different parts and we did it over an eleven week period It was a huge uh, thing but we did it and I've done it um we l a theater works is really interesting and Susan Lohenberg because we did for example I did um, a play with Fred Thompson um and we did it at the Smithsonian. We did Plaza Suite uh, at the BBC in London. Uh, Richard and I um, d- recorded uh, Prisoner of Second Avenue because we had done it in London at the Royal Haymarket. And we recorded it at the Skirball and wound up getting a Grammy nomination.
0: Yes, you were up against George Carlin. Carlin read, I know. Yeah.
1: I really am proud of that. I love that. <laughs> um Uh, yeah so it's a it's you do the play and Susan has a knack for picking I think the plays that will work well that way
0: but as someone who has worked in television and film and Mm -hmm. theater what is it like to completely portray a character knowing that ultimately the largest portion of the audience that will hear the performance only hears the performance does it change how you interpret
1: for me it does a little yes i i try to i I keep that in mind so that well so that one's emotional life is coming through the voice
0: Hmm. one last question you began a program at Wesleyan University Mm. a couple of years ago, um, which was about training for young actors. Mm. Um, What was the impetus behind it, and how'd it go?
1: Um, It was great. Uh, Tony Branch, who had um, started a program called the British American Dramatic Dramatic a drama and art thing uh, called Bada, and they uh, they had a wonderful program called uh, Midsummer at uh, Oxford or something. And so basically, they brought American, young American uh, people who wanted to learn traditional um, British uh, style Shakespeare, the whole thing, and oh, as well as contemporary. And Tony had contacted me to be a teacher. Um, so I went to Oxford for a, a couple of different sessions over the years, and then we decided we would try and do a, a pilot program in the United States. So what we did is – but we took very young people. We had from, from 16 to 18 because I, I wanted to work with really young people. And then Fiona Shaw and Henry Goodman and all these wonderful English actors, Derek Jacoby and everybody and uh, Brian Cox and myself. I mean, so so that, that, was, well, that was the tradition that Bada had established is that um, when I was there, Alan Rickman would come or Derek Jacoby or Rosemary mm-hmm. Harrison. And, and so these American actors in London, uh, these American students in London would get to have a mm. real. Experience of a British uh, tradition, and so we decided we would try and do a pilot program called it the Flying Swan, and um, we did. We didn't do. Um, uh, we did some Shakespeare because we had a couple of teachers from Bada, and um, we did Contemporary as well. And we did a four-week program, the same as Bada, and it was a great pilot program, and the kids really loved it. And the economy just made it very difficult for us to be able to continue it. But we have the idea um, we may be doing it at the College of Santa Fe in a, a year. Hmm. So it would be fun to do again.
0: Well, in the meantime, you <laughs> are here in New York right now with Keen Company for I Never Sang for My Father. Uh, and I'm glad to hear you say that you're planning to spend even more time here and, and do more theater and, Marsha Mason, we will look forward to everything that comes next for you. Oh, thank you.
1: This has been a lovely interview. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks for being here. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org, You can follow The Wing on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.